This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101 we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single-topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon? Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello, everybody, all you diggers out there, and welcome to the latest installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. This is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics, all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way. So, all right, let's get started. Today's episode of Deeper Digs features an interview I did with Gary Wright, the Dreamweaver himself. Most of you already know Gary hit it big in the mid-70s with two smash singles, Dreamweaver and Love is Alive. The album, The Dreamweaver, went multi-platinum as well, and Gary and band toured the world in support of it. Gary Wright is also a prolific sideman and session player. He's played keys on a ton of hit songs over the years and he's done a bit of stage and screen to boot. As a child, Gary appeared on television shows and commercials, and he acted and sang opposite Florence Henderson in the 1954 Broadway musical Fanny. He even released an Everly Brothers-inspired single in 1960. The man was born to the boards, you might say. Years later, while studying medicine in Europe in 1967, he quit school and decided to try his hand at music professionally. He formed a band called the New York Times, Right around then, Gary met producer Chris Blackwell of Violent Records fame. Blackwell introduced him to keyboardist Mike Harrison and drummer Mike Kelly. The three of them formed the influential and prolific band Spooky Tooth. Spooky Tooth was one of those bands that punched way above their weight. 
Their record sales were unspectacular, but they did killer live shows, and they were innovative and highly influential on other musicians. In particular, Spooky Tooth pushed the keyboards up front, used them as a lead instrument. They weren't the first to do this, but they were among the first to do this really well. broke up in 1970, the first of several times, and Gary started looking to establish a solo career. He ended up signing a three-album deal with A&M. His bass player on the first project, Klaus Vorman, introduced him to former Beatle George Harrison, and things sort of took off from there. He ended up playing keyboards on Harrison's 1970 masterpiece, All Things Must Pass. The two became lifelong friends and spiritual confidants. Gary Wright's keyboard work would grace a lot of George Harrison's songs through the years. A lot of other songs, too. Gary Wright was a first-call session player for decades. There's a pretty good chance he plays on several albums in your collection. Along with his work in the studio with Harrison, Wright has played with everyone from Ringo Starr to Harry Nilsson to B.B. King to Jerry Lee Lewis. In 1975, he signed with Warner Brothers, where he would achieve his greatest commercial success. The Dreamweaver remains his most famous album, and not only because the title track became a number one hit. As best as we can tell, The Dreamweaver was the first big-time rock and roll album performed almost entirely with keyboard synthesizers and drums. There's hardly a guitar to be heard on it. Since then, lots of rock musicians have gone heavy on the synthesizers, but in 1975, this was all new territory. years to 1972. Gary Wright, still with A&M, and he is working on the third record of that deal. He assembled the band Wonder Wheel, featuring guitarist Mick Jones, who would go on to fame as a founding member of Foreigner, to back him on that album. Wonder Wheel recorded the bulk of that album at Apple Studios in North London, but A&M abruptly and unexpectedly canceled the release and shelved the album, terminating their relationship with Gary Wright and Wonder Wheel. That long-lost album, Ring of Changes, has been remastered and re-released on July 29, 2016, nearly 50 years after its recording. Gary has launched a fall tour of the West Coast promoting the long-awaited release. That tour opens at Yoshi's in Oakland, California on October 9th. <laughs> I'm so there. Gary joined us for a telephone interview on September 24, 2016. The interview recording has been lightly edited for length and clarity. So, let's get to know the Dreamweaver, Mr. Gary Wright.
Welcome, Gary Wright, to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's Deeper Digs in Rock. We're really excited to uh, to have you. Oh, thank you. I hope we have time to discuss your long and storied career, your pioneering work with synthesizers, your influential 60s band Spooky Tooth, of course, your string of blockbuster hits beginning in the mid-70s, and even a little of your early days walking the boards of Broadway. But first, let's talk about this exciting truly rock and roll artifact you've given to the world 44 years after it was initially recorded by what ended up being a one-off supergroup project uh, you called Wonder Wheel and the recently released album Ring of Changes. So first question, let's talk a little bit about how the album came to be in 1972 and who was on it and uh, how you and the band crafted it. Well, I was signed to A&M Records and I did two solo albums with them, one called Extraction and the other called Footprint. Mm-hmm. And Ring of Changes was the third album for me to make on my deal that I had with A&M oh, Records. Okay. So we did the album, released it, and they said that they didn't think it was going to be a commercial success and that it was best that we drop you from the label. And so when they, those things happen, it's quite common in the music business. So it, it got shelved. And it was kind of disappointing because the band was really a tight band. and they were, There were some great players in it. It was basically Mick Jones, myself, a guy named Tom Duffy from Lindisfarne on bass, and Bryson Graham on drums, who was a great drummer. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he was really good, up, up the school of John Bonham, you know, he, but he was really good. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that was the band. We... we Went down to the countryside and at that time, and we wrote a whole bunch of songs. Kind of doing the together. Led Zeppelin thing, go find a castle out in the countryside and uh, yeah. write a bunch of songs. Yeah, we went down to Devon, which is right on the ocean in southwest oh, yeah. England. Mm-hmm. Beautiful there. And we came up with all this stuff, and uh, then we went back and recorded it at Apple Studio. But And that was a brand new studio. That had just opened, right? Exactly. In fact, I, th- I think I read this was the first album that was actually recorded in there. I think it was, too. I mean, the only other projects that I know were done there were Back Off Boogaloo, Ringo Single. Yeah. I played piano on that, and I remember being <laughs> in the studio then. But it was a great studio. Oh, I bet. State of the art. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what was the first song that was recorded? You know, I think it was Love Taker. Okay, the first song from the album. Was that kind of the first song that you guys put together out in Devon that uh, made everybody go, oh, you know what? I think we got some magic happening here. Um, it was one of them. I, I have to say there was a bunch of them that we did that we felt that way about. But that certainly was one of them because it was a guitar riff-oriented uh, kind of track, which was, I was very familiar with because of my time with Spooky Tooth. You know, it was like mm-hmm. a riff, a rock riff kind of driven band. Yeah, which was really huge at that period of time. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a, a good way to go. I can see that. Now, you are primarily a keyboard player and vocalist, but did you play guitar on it as well? I did not play guitar. No, so it was Jones all Mick Jones. Jones. 
It was all Mick Jones. Okay. Well, I did play guitar, though, on the Dick Cavett show on the album before Ring of Change's Footprint, and George Harrison invited me to be on it with him. And right in the middle of this, I did a song called Two-Faced Man, and right in the middle of the song, on live TV, my, one of my strings broke. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept playing on. <laughs> okay, good for you. Yeah, like a pro. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So, all right, so you guys knew you had something right away. Who are the vocalists? Is it you and Mick? Well, Mick sang on one song called Creation. The last song of the album. The, the yeah. Yeah, so we'll get into that. All right. Was it just you doing the harmonies with yourself? No, it was Mick sang the lower harmony part on Creation, and Tom Duffy sang the other double lead vocal part. That's what on I'm talking about. Stuff. Okay, yeah. so it was Tom Duffy who is along with you, because some of that, and I've only been listening to the album for the last couple of days, and it is Awesome. I mean, oh, I, I would have bought that album in 72 in a heartbeat. Let me tell you, this is right up my alley. And it still today is right up my alley. I, I have my own cover band and I could see three or four songs that I could play right away in, <laughs> in that. So how did we get to Wonder Wheel, which was the name of the band? Did you choose the name of the band? I did, yeah. It took me a long time to find the, the name of the band because I wasn't happy with anything that I came up with. And after we finally narrowed everything down, it became Wright's Wonder Wheel, and I didn't like that. And then I just thought Gary Wright and Wonder Wheel is the best way to go. So so you went from Spooky Tooth, then you did two solo albums, is that correct? And then you yes. decided to do this as a third album. What were you listening to at that time? What got you to this musical point where Ring of Changes is created? A lot of that time I was listening to the band. I was listening to Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. Free... Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers and Free, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson. Oh, Aqualung was big right then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Traffic, of course. I heard so, some kind of Delaney and Bonnie, uh, Little Almond Brothers in there, some of that yeah, southern some type of. Yeah, the Brothers stuff uh, is quite good. Yeah, I mean, you were right in that moment. It was just what was coming out of the airwaves, basically. Right, right. It Although a, it was coming out of the airways from the U.K. because I wasn't living in the, in the U.S. at that time. That's right. That's right. I lived so. in the U.K. from like 1967 to 74. So most of that music was done during that period of time, the ones those three A&M albums. In our main narrative, we are smack dab in the British invasion. We've had like four episodes in the U.K. because it's all happening there. You were fortunate to be there right at that time, I can imagine. Oh, it was great. Oh, I can't, yeah. There's nothing like it. I bet. Those are great times. Okay, all of the songs are great. I, I can't put the album down myself. But if I can focus on three, can we talk about Love Taker, Goodbye Sunday, and Creation? I kind of split those up. My personal favorite on the album is Working on a River right now. But oh, I like that too, yeah. Love Taker was the first song that you guys created, right? Yes. Okay, and then again, a riff rock, kind of a, a heavy feel to that. Was this the original sequence of the album, or did you change it? I think it was the original sequence that we did after we mastered the album. And then Goodbye Sunday, that was released at the time, correct? I don't recall that that was released. It was on a film soundtrack. Oh, a guy named Willie Bogner, who I did most of his films, I did the musical soundtracks. Now, he was but, a um, filmmaker, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think I read you did three films, is that right? Yes. Uh, are you a big yeah. skier? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a good friend of mine, and he's in the fashion business, and he's a wonderful human being. Good. Yeah, you... So I, I did a version of Goodbye Sunday, not the one that was on the album, though. Not with no, George no. Harrison playing Slide. No, 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. The only single that, that was released was um, I Know. Oh. It was released in the UK and the US. As an early preview of the album, right? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Was that part of how the album didn't come out, you know? The single never happened, and maybe that had some part in the decision-making process of passing on the album. And then Goodbye Sunday, of course, I'm sure everybody's talked to you about, and George came in and, and played Slide. Just tell me the story of how that came about. Well, we were in the studio with the band with Bryson and Tom and Mick and myself, and uh, George was there, and, and we were just having a little bit of a jam session, which we always used to do before we were going to record something. So we started playing that the feel that was on the uh, beginning of Goodbye Sunday, and George came in with his slide guitar, and then I started singing Goodbye Sunday and taught the band of the, uh, the song. And so it worked that this little jam we had actually fit quite well on the beginning of Goodbye Sunday. Did you come in with the song, or did, or did are you saying that it came out of the jam that you guys were doing right then? Well, the song had been finished. Okay. The actual, all the parts and everything. So oh, we, I see. Okay. And then we just took the jam that we were doing and put that together with the actual song that I had, and it worked. It, it certainly did. And then the other slide that is being used on the album, that's Mick? Yes. Great work by Mick Jones, of course. I told you what my favorite track on the album is, and that's just today. It'll probably change next week, but... Is there a singular favorite for you? I like creation. Okay, I was going to end with creation. So tell me about the making of creation, which I've listened to that one probably lyrically more than most of the others so far. And and I think I can see some of your Eastern philosophy in there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's the beginnings, the very beginnings of my Eastern philosophy, curiosity. And that was right around the time I had already met George, and he was kind of uh, my spiritual mentor. Because so, you'd already played on uh, All Things Must Pass, right? All Things Must Pass and Living in the Material World. Oh, I yeah. played on all his albums. <laughs> yeah. So I think this was kind of like the forerunner of all that. A lot of the lyrical concepts, you know, that being born when you were the first light in creation, when everything happened and you were part of that, you know. I don't know what inspired me to write that, but I, I actually quite like the way the lyrical content turned out. Yeah, it, it fits really nicely with the music. And, the mixed uh, guitar playing on that uh, yeah, was great. Yeah, especially in that second half when it changes. That's Oh, when it goes the electric, yeah. That's yeah, that's, it's just awesome. So the double guitar is actually Mick at yes. the beginning, the double acoustic. Okay, okay. favorite today would it have been different 44 years ago if that were my favorite track i don't know <laughs> i know, know i'm asking you to think back 
44 years ago. I mean, when you first finished the album, were you like going, yeah, that's the one? I'm sure I did because it closed the album. Yeah. Yeah, and it is a great closer. Although, yeah, I do like the bonus tracks, especially I know, but it did close the album. So that's, that's yeah. okay. Okay, so pretty much you've stayed the same. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right, so how did you come to rediscover this pot of gold? And what was the work like bringing it back to life, Dr. Frankenstein? Uh, well, what happened was that I'm, after the album got you know rejected, I had a tape copy of at 15 IPS of the whole album, and I just kept it. And I you know I knew in the back of my mind that I had this thing all the time, and I always was curious as to where I had kept it and you know to make sure it didn't get destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I went to various labels and said, hey, would you be interested in putting this out? And got no's, 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 not really. So, so you brought over the years. Yes. And just got told, uh, no, we're not interested. Yeah, and then Michelle Anthony, who was my manager, D. Anthony's daughter, moved up into quite a high position over at Universal. And Michelle and I had always been friends, and I said, look, I've got this album. It's never been released. Is there something uh, you could do? She said, well, we have this label uh, that's part of Universal called Universal Music Enterprises, and we do catalog albums. And let me see, I'll pass it by somebody there. Then the next day or the day after that, she said, call this guy, Bruce Resnikoff, and I did, and he said, yeah, he said, I want to put that out. <laughs> right away, right then. Yeah. That call finally worked. Yeah. I have to credit Michelle for getting that all together. Then the whole thing got picked up, and they did the mastering, and they, they were great So you, you did remix it and remaster it? Not remix. You didn't remix it, okay, and then you remastered it. So it's basically right out the gate, this is what it sounded like had it come out in 1972. Yes. Wow. That's so unusual. So what's it like to release a new album in today's market that just doesn't sound like today's music? Because it's not a reissue or unreleased B-sides or outtakes that are strung together. These are almost never heard tracks from a golden age of rock and roll. Right. I'm not sure if we found this before. It's, it's almost like a time capsule. Yeah, that's right. Exactly what it is. Or somebody discovered it in a lost tomb in Egypt. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, will you tour this album? Yeah. I, ha- I start my tour on the uh, 13th of October. You do? Yeah. We have about eight shows uh, in the Northwest, Midwest, basically, and then there'll be more of uh, the rest of the parts of the country, probably coming into January, February, that period of time. Oh, I can't wait. What I'm doing, uh, I Know, Creation, and Love Taker in the show. You're doing three of the songs from the album. Yes. Actually, I can get you to play Working on a River. Yeah, I almost chose that one. It's funny you said that. I might, I might add, you know, after this tour is over, I might just actually add that. I'll tell you a little story. A couple of months ago, I, I went and saw Tony Visconti and Woody Woodmancy tour The Man Who Sold the World. They recorded it with David Bowie. Then the band kind of got fired and they never toured with the album. So they came out and played the whole song from beginning to end, and it was awesome. So really? if I would pay to see you play all of Ring of Changes. Well, I might just do that. Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. We'll help push the album so that uh, it makes it worth your while, put it that way. Okay, great. And I hope you have a badass band to play. I do. They need to be. That is some well, muscular rock and roll. That's right. It is. It really, you really need good players to do it. All right. Let me see if I can shift just a little bit. So 
the next thing I really want to get into is your pioneering work with synthesizers. I don't think you get some of the props you deserve here. The mid-70s work that you were doing strictly with synthesizers is absolutely remarkable. What I find really interesting is that you didn't go bombastic like Keith Emerson or cerebral like Kraftwerk. You seem to went organic. And I'm not sure if that's a fair statement, so I want to get your point on that. But it's like they were tools to be used in song craft. Is that fair to say? That's very accurate. Yeah, it is. Because I, I still kept the direction of my music, which was kind of like R&B. Mm-hmm. But I, I used that in the context of synthesizers, especially the main thing that was really different than anything else that was at at the time was the synthesized bass. Yeah. I played that's... synthesized bass on all the tracks. I'm a frustrated bass player, right? <laughs> but it was well, you a say lot you're an R&B guy, so, you know, that drives R&B. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how that happened. And I was true to the my belief in, in R&B as me as an R&B kind of artist, pop R&B. But there was one rock track, actually a couple, a Power of Love probably was the most, the one that would stand out or uh-huh. much higher. But I was the first person having recorded an all-keyboard album with the exception of guitar on one track. That was Ronnie Montrose played on Power of Love. Oh, that was? But I also, okay, he's a, he's a Bay Area guy. Yeah, I know, yeah. I had that, and that was it. You know, I used a lot of different kind of string parts and sound effects, especially. Yeah. That all came from the Mini Moog that I was using. So I, I didn't consciously say, I'm going to make a keyboard album. It just <laughs> kind of happened, you know? And Well, that's and I what I was it, looking for. So it just kind of happened. It did, yeah. And I, then I went on tour, and I was the first artist, I believe, who ever toured with a, an all-keyboard band. Yeah, three and, keyboard players, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, there were two it, keyboardists, myself, and a drummer. And a drummer. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, wow. And I know about this show. You you play on the, uh, the Bicentennial show in Philadelphia with Yes and Peter Frampton. That's correct. And that's with that band, right? Yes. Wow. So That band would have been, at the time, um, uh, Peter Rylick on keyboards, Steve Porcaro on keyboards, who then went on to be in Toto, Art Wood on drums, myself, and my sister... Lorna Lee and her backing vocalist, uh, along with her, Betty Sweet, and that was it. I'll have to look on YouTube, see if I can find some uh, videos of that. There's got to be something out there, huh? Yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely stuff on that. So let's get you to the beginning. Was it Pierre Henry that first introduced you to the possibility of electronic music when you were in Spooky Tooth? Not really. He was more like classical electronic music. Uh-huh. You know, like uh, there were certain guys that did it in a very classical kind of way, just with sounds. Like and, avant-garde, and the classical? Yeah, avant-garde yeah, kind of, exactly. okay. yeah, the stuff Paul McCartney was all into in the 60s and all that. Okay, so that was more of uh, the classical synthesizers. So, so how did you first get into the programmables? And when were you first introduced to electronic music and saw the possibilities? You know, I listened to a little bit of Tomita, the Snowflakes of Dancing, that album, and and just little bits and pieces of different things. The Pink Floyd had a lot, a big influence on me too. Because oh of that. yeah, 
They're yeah. great. Oh, Dark Side of the Moon right then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. that stuff is really good. I was a friend of Rick Wright's, actually. He's a really, he was a wonderful kid. A wizard. Yeah. Love those guys. So I didn't really, I bought a mini Moog when I left Spooky Tooth and I went for the last time, that is, and I brought all my keyboards to my home that I was renting in New Jersey. So this was after was, Ring of Changes. Yes. There's is. no synthesizers on Ring of Changes, right? No, that was pre-synthesizer. There was just, the closest was the Hammond organ. Hammond. Oh, oh, really? Okay. Okay. So I think, no, no, there was actually. Wasn't Moog out there by then? It was just starting to come out, mainly the big... Yeah, with all, with all the cables all over the place and exactly. all that, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Which, that must have been fun to take on tour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I did listen to to a bunch of stuff, and I had the uh, keyboard little studio in my home that I was renting in New Jersey, and I had a clavinet and a Fender Rhodes and a Hammond organ and uh, a Moog synthesizer, and I used the Moog basically on just doing the bass stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, when I did the song Dreamweaver, I was in the studio with just me, Jim Keltner, and David Foster. It was the last song I chose. I, I had another song, and I played them both to Jim and David, and they both said, you know, you should use Dreamweaver. Good choice. Song. Yeah, really. Good decision, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, so when I when I recorded, I had you know I didn't think it was a single. I just thought, well, you know, I'll just go electronic on this thing and get. Because yeah, it kind of starts off effects. with this ambient sort of sounds and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and it was kind of like they were called tinkling bells or electronically generated and uh-huh. using an echoplex. And so I wanted it to sound really spacey with that big intro chord, you know, with kind of like has all these cool sounds. And I had no idea that radio was going to run with it like they did, but it really did. I mean, they really went all over that, that song. Because the first song that was released on the album was Love is Alive. Yeah, Your Love that, is Alive, right. Yeah, and that didn't happen. So they released Dreamy, and that was shot right up to number one. And then they re-released Love is Alive, and then went up to number two. Yeah, so it dragged that back to life. That's uh... Exactly. Well, I, hey, I just got to say about Dreamweaver, um, it's such a moment in my life. It literally every time I'd hear that song, I probably wore that record out. Uh, just I just wanted to say that from a from a fan's perspective, it was really really amazing. What was your thought process putting these songs together at that moment? I mean, you said that you didn't really go into this thinking you were going to make a synthesizer album, but did right. the songs just kind of demand it? No, it, it was it wasn't even that. It was that the resources that I had to play to actually have like a studio. I didn't have any guitars. I'm not a guitar player. And all I had were these, you know, clavinet and, and the Minimoog and, and Rhodes and organ. And I had a little box called a Rhythm Ace, uh, which was the forerunner of the drum machine. And so I used that on a lot of the tracks. And as I put the thing together, it, it started to sound really cool to me. I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. There's no guitars. And then somebody from Warner Brothers showed up. He wanted to see what I was doing just to check me out. And I played it to him and he went, wow, that's that's kind of really good. And I said, do you think it needs guitars? He said, that's good as it is. I said, yeah, I think so too. And that was actually very liberating for me because I thought, oh, great. Now I don't have to put loud guitars like I did in Spooky Tooth. Right, right, right. Wow. Okay. It all fell together, you know, accidentally kind of like. It wasn't like me sitting down at a draftsman table saying, well, I'm going to put this on this or this on this. It just came out that way. Again, organically. It just yep. kind of worked itself together. So, And same with, you know, Your Love is Alive. It kind of has a guitar feel to it, but there's no guitar on it. Right, exactly. 
That's that's really really amazing. And do you think that what you're doing right there in this is 1975-76, right? So <laughs> you're basically inventing the future when you get right down to it because I mean all this stuff becomes ubiquitous by the mid 80s for certain. You know, you mentioned that you've got this deep R&B background. Is that what you grew up and you really fell in love with first? Oh, yeah, very much so. I used to listen to the old doo-wop groups. Yeah, a guy from New Jersey. Right, right, yep. right. I can imagine. <laughs> big, I can imagine. A big James Brown and Ray Charles fan. Oh, we we love those guys. Yeah, we give them yeah. mad props. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially James Brown is, man, he's, uh, a, he's a walking god, man. So He's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. So when I'm hearing some of your stuff, I can hear, you know, the Hall and Oates coming a little bit after that blue-eyed soul type of thing that came right. to, to being after that. Then now your synthesizers are now getting to be in all music that synthesized bass. By the time you get into the early 80s, that's everywhere. So you were years ahead uh, of everybody. And I just wanted to let the people know that is really the case. So during your commercial career high in the mid 70s, one of our central points here at the Rock and Archaeology Project is the link between music, culture and technology. And Gary, you hit the trifecta. So. What's it like making such a dent in the universe? Um, it gives you a lot of responsibility on one side of the, co- the coin. Um, you know, it's like people are following you, or, and which is, you know, I mean, some people that can turn into a huge ego trip. Mm-hmm. I try not. I tried not to ever go down that road. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you really made a big impact there, uh, and uh, I just want to say thanks for for the the, the work you've done. So, oh, what's next you. for you? Well, obviously, well, we talked a little bit. You're getting ready to go on tour. I'll be touring for a while, then I plan on coming back and doing some more recording. Yeah, the last original album you had came out in uh, 2011, is that right? Yeah, Connected. Yes, Connected, Connected. And then you wrote your autobiography. Then I wrote my autobiography, which took a couple of years. <laughs> oh, I did. That was now, a long process, but I enjoyed doing it. I bet. Is it just like going through all of uh, the notes and all of the memorabilia and trying to piece when this happened and that happened? Yeah, more or less. It was more in my head, though. I didn't. I didn't have to look for physical things. I think I just looked for experiential things. What I did, how I felt, how I reacted to this when I was dropped from the label. You know, that those kind of things. Yeah. And yeah. I, I try to balance it off with a sense of spirituality that, you know, I always had God in the background of my mind, you know, and having him guide me, you know, rather than me doing it myself. And, you know, a lot listen of to the universe, from, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, a lot of that came from George. He was my mentor. But I picked up and then I really got into it, the spiritual side. And the book kind of reflects that, I think, a bit. Well, we're going to have our rock and roll librarian read it. And then we're going to sit and discuss it. So you can oh, look great. forward to that in the near future. So any great. more unearthed surprises? Not at the moment. Um, not at the moment. I still have some things, you know, on tape that I just have to transfer into Pro Tools. But they're more like kind of like environmental music. But I have, I've already started writing songs, you know, for my next album. And I'm actually, which is uh, giving me great joy, I'm working with my nine-year-old granddaughter. Oh, that's awesome. Got an amazing voice. She's like a young Nora Jones. And she's got perfect pitch, perfect vibrato. It's it's scary. But it gives me a lot of fun. And I'm actually going into her classroom and showing kids how to write songs. And the teachers and the principal is thrilled. 
because they've taken all that out of the schools. The, uh, this is a cause for you. The missing um, A in STEM, it should be STEAM, right? Yes. Yeah, the arts being lost in our public education system is a travesty. It really is, because music is, and art are a very, very important part of the lessons you learn growing up. And without that, just with, we're not like robots, you know, with just learning science and math and computer stuff. It's, there's other parts to life. It's an incomplete life for a child to grow up in without the arts. Yeah. They get to listen to the music all the time on their iPods, on the radio, but they can't actively play and get be a part of it, you know. And another thing you have to battle up against what's going on now in the music business with artists really not being able to make a living doing it anymore because of Spotify and some of those things where they, you know, streaming and and just all the things that are out there that are really prohibiting the free expression of music. So I'm at least starting off on that very young uh, level with the kids, you know, just starting to show them how you write a song, you know, and, and it's been a lot of fun and they love it and it's it's a great reward for me. And uh, that's one of the things I'm planning on sticking by in the new year and developing that more. Well, good for you. I, we'd love to hear more of that. And we'll gladly promote that as you push this agenda, which is uh, much needed uh, out there. So we completely agree with you. I mean, I, I can't imagine my life without uh, the arts, which were part of the public education system when I was growing up. And, you know, I, I was informed through life. You know, we've mentioned Pink Floyd several times. I can't imagine my life without Dark Side of the Moon explaining to me basically what the phases of life were and all the other rock tunes out there. Not that the kids should have the stuff we listen to, but they should have art in general and their own form of expression. So uh, good for you out there pushing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate you spending uh, time with us today, and uh, we all look forward to seeing you out on the road here very shortly. We'll uh, look for the tour dates and promote them on uh, on our Facebook site and the rest of our social media, so you can count on that. Great. Thank you so much for the support. I appreciate it. I got to say that was a lot of fun. So before we close, we just want to highlight a couple things from our conversation with Gary. First, his deep lifelong friendship with George Harrison, whom Gary described as his spiritual mentor. He discusses this in his 2014 autobiography, Dreamweaver, a memoir, music, meditation, and my friendship with George Harrison. Our rock and roll librarian has this one on her list to review very soon. And finally, Gary has done some wonderful work on a cause that is very dear to us as well, music education in public schools. Gary had some great things to say on this topic, and we want to give a very enthusiastic get involved to our fans. It is a sad shame that arts education has been cut so drastically in our public schools. Finally, we'd like to extend our sincere appreciation to Gary for spending time with us and for sharing some great stories about his long, productive life in rock and roll. Keep an eye on our social media feeds. We will keep you posted on the progress of his tour. And head over to Gary Wright's website at thedreamweaver.com for links and tour dates, music, merchandise, and more. I'm Christian Swain, and this is Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Thanks again to Gary Wright, and thank you for listening. Keep up the rockin'. 
Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.